So our passage this morning is from Revelation chapter 1, reading from verse 9 to chapter 2, verse 7. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a great little section for us, very practical, as Jesus writes letters or sends letters via the Apostle John to these um, seven churches with the funny names. Um, they're all in Asia Minor, kind of, I think it will be nice places to go on holiday these days. Um, but the way it is in Revelation, thank you to Ben for reading, the Apostle John has this vision of the risen Lord Jesus, awe-inspiring vision. And then he, he asks John to write down messages for each of these seven churches. And that's what we're going to be looking through over the next few weeks. I don't know about you, I, I still get the sense of excitement when there's letters on the doormat. You think, oh, I wonder what it'll be. But very quickly it fades as you pick it up and you say, oh, it's from the bank or it's from the supermarket, something like that. Well, these are letters from the risen Lord Jesus, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. 
as John saw it, his feet like molten metal, the one whose voice is like the sound of rushing waters and whose face was like the sun shining in all its strength. It's a privilege to have these letters from this risen Jesus. And these are letters to which we must also pay attention A very helpful way of looking at the content of these letters is to think of them as little, um, like, reports on the seven churches. I guess all of us will know what it's like having reports from school days, perhaps, or an appraisal at work. On a recent visit home, I was given, I think my parents were trying to get rid of all my stuff, and they handed over a box file of all my old school reports, and it made some very interesting reading on the way home, seeing what was going really well and what was going not so well, and... um, That's what these little letters are like, as Jesus says, I'm really pleased about this in your church life, but this other thing, not so much. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're making your mind up about what you think of church, I guess there'll be things that attract you, also things that annoy you. Well, it's the same with Jesus, and I expect it'll be really interesting to hear what he says as he analyzes these seven churches and gives these little... um, summaries and reports on on them but also if we are christians for those of us who are here members um of chalmers church or some other church edinburgh north who are here with us how are we getting on that's what these letters prompt us to ask what's going well at chalmers if jesus was to write a report on us what's going well at chalmers or edinburgh north what's going not so well It's not that we'll be exactly the same as any of the seven churches here, Smyrna or Ephesus or any of the others, but from all of the letters, there will be things that we can learn. If you look down, kind of, uh, it's at the end of each one, so verse 7, as we have it, the start of chapter 2, there's a repeated phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You notice that? So even though each letter is only addressed to one church, All the churches are to listen in as Jesus explains in these letters what he values, what he he thinks, the the sorts of things that matter to him in the life of a local church. So these are letters uh, in which Jesus gives a report on the churches. And another really helpful way of thinking about this section, um, just before we we have a look and and, um, really uh, make a start with it, is to think about how these opening chapters relate to the rest of the book of Revelation. So um, in some ways, these are the calm before the storm. After the letters, it all gets a bit psychedelic with the beasts and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and angels. And as Jesus, uh, um, well, he reveals um, to his his apostle John, and as John records for us, this vivid description of the battle in heaven, the war that is raging between the Lord and his enemies, the, the spiritual war that is raging, and it's oh, vivid stuff, and we'll see that soon enough, hopefully. And these letters, though, as they start the book, they show us how the big cosmic war is played out on the ground. Does that make sense? In our normal lives, normal church life, we don't see the beasts and the, 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 the vivid spiritual war. We don't see that. But we do see the kinds of things that these letters speak about. We see persecution and um, Christians resisting temptation and seeking to, to spread the gospel. And so these letters show us how that great war that John will show us 
which, which is, is there, it's real, but it's hidden, how that plays out on the ground in our ordinary lives, which does raise the stakes for us as we seek to apply these letters in our own lives and also our church lives, because um, I guess we're, we're used to thinking of ourselves as, um, as um, living in, in peacetime, but um, this book is saying that's, that's not the case. There is a spiritual war raging, and we need to learn to see our lives and to see our church life against the background of that spiritual war, that as we resist ungodliness, that is an act of resistance in the war, or as we, as we um, concede ground and give in to temptation, or as we as a church become woolly, fighting one another, that is like a military setback, and so it really raises the stakes as we think about these issues in these letters, seeing it against the background of the rest of the book. So it's going to be a really good section for us, really practical, straightforward. And as we look at each of the letters, broadly, not with all of them, but most of them, and it's true this morning, there are things that first Jesus says are going really well in the churches, things he praises them for, and then other things that are going on that are not so good, and they need to work on that. And so that's how I intend to look at this. We can see it this morning. It's really simple. We can learn the lessons from what was going well at Ephesus, and from what was going not so well. So first of all then, what was going well? Well, look at these, chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, look at those verses and we see first that Jesus praises this church for their faithfulness. He praises this church for their faithfulness. And as we look at the verses, I think we can break down what was going well into, into three kind of areas or three aspects. First, he says, he praises this church because they are working. Okay? They are working. So look down at the second verse there as the, the kind of meat of the letter begins. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's what Jesus sees when he looks at this church. Or verse 3, I know how you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. That's what he sees. These Ephesians, they're an active church. In their behavior, they're living. They are upright and industrious. They are spreading the gospel, relieving the poor, supporting one another. If I can put it like this, their they're rotors would have been full of volunteers. Their Christianity explored courses were running strongly. Hospitality was happening all over the church. It wasn't easy, though. We can see in what the Lord says to them that they were enduring hardships. Perhaps they were being sacrificial with their money. They were working really hard at staying united. Perhaps they were being sacrificial with the time that they had, always going out, meeting one another, even when there were things they would rather be doing, making one another feel included. Perhaps in their evangelism, they were taking risks, speaking very boldly for the Lord Jesus. They were enduring these things, and they did not grow weary, and so Jesus praises them. And we can learn from that, can't we? They were working. On top of this, though, the second aspect is that they were also thinking. They were thinking. So have a look, uh, have a look again, please, at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
and have found them false. In his ministry repeatedly, the Lord Jesus warned about false teaching, false uh, false apostles. That just means uh, um, somebody who's claiming to be a spokesman for Jesus. And the Ephesians, it seems, had really taken on board those warnings. They knew that just because someone is standing up in a church, that doesn't mean they're going to be saying what is true, unfortunately. They knew that they had to listen and they had to check what was being said against what the Bible said. He says that they, they checked the person's message and the person's life against the Bible. And they weren't easily impressed by anecdote and oratory and all the rest of it. They had their heads screwed on. They asked the crucial question, the crucial question in church life, which is this. Is this person really saying what this passage is saying? Week by week in church, they were asking that question. They have a keen sense of spiritual smell. And Jesus is really pleased with them about that. He says, I'm really glad that you are thinking Christians. You're not swallowing everything at face value. You are thinking about it. And again, that's something we can learn, we can learn from, isn't it? Every week, every Sunday morning, some helpers in the church have to lift six or seven really heavy boxes of Bibles and then put them away again at the end of the day. And there is no more important work in our church life because it's so important that we can have this in our hands and look down and see, check, see for ourselves whether what is being said is really from the Bible or whether it's just my own opinion or someone's own opinion. We need to be able to check. And after the services or during the week, it's so encouraging when people ask questions and talk to one another about what's been said from the Bible because it shows that we're thinking. Or a few weeks ago, when after the evening service, we had that grill the preachers session, we could ask any questions about bits of the Bible that have been being taught from. Very important, again, very healthy, that we're a thinking church, not just automatically uh, swallowing what's said, but processing it, making sure we understand it, making sure that we are checking it against what the Bible actually says. That's the second part of their faithfulness that Jesus praises them for, their working, their thinking. And then thirdly, a little bit shocking, but thirdly, as we look down, we see he commends them because they hate what Jesus hates. Look at verse 6. Yet you, uh, this you have, this you have in your favor, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All week, I've been unable to escape the thought that Nicolaitans sounds like a flavor of ice cream. Um, we don't know very much about these people. They crop up a few times in these letters. I don't think anywhere else in the Bible. And all we, all we can say for sure is that it was some sort of group. Um, they were inside the church, and they were promoting um, false teaching that was somehow excusing or promoting ungodly behavior. That's all we know about them. And what Jesus says is very striking. He, he says he hates their practices and so do the Ephesians, and they are right too. That's a bit shocking, isn't it? That there are things that people do, things that people in churches do, things maybe that we do, that Jesus hates, and we should hate them too. Now, I almost hesitate to say that, because it, you know, it sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? You can imagine the headlines. But 
That's what it says in black and white. We need to learn from that. I think often I, I don't hate my sin. I don't hate it when I see Christians being led astray. You know, I, I don't like it, but I'm not sure that I would, I would um, go so far as to say that I hate it. Now, it's very important, if you look at that verse again, it's not the people that Jesus says that, that um, he hates or they hate and are right to. It's their works, the things that they do. But nevertheless, there's a real strength of feeling here that was there in Ephesus, and Jesus is glad that it is, and we need to learn from. Let's think about our own lives. For ourselves, if we're Christians, <clears throat> there'll be things that we know aren't right in our hearts and our lives that we've become accustomed to. You know, whether it's our own behavior or how we treat other people or ways in which we bend the rules or bend the truth, we learn to live with sin. But Jesus is urging us here not to. Well, there we go. That's what was going well at Ephesus. Jesus praises this church because they are faithful. They are working. They're thinking. They hate the things that he hates. And Jesus sees all this and he knows. Do you notice that first bit of verse 2? I know. That's a precious word, isn't it? I guess there'll be, there'll be people here who are working hard in church life, serving hard, resisting temptation, resisting sin. And it's hard. You're, you're, you're enduring, having to endure, having to keep going. And it's not easy. And Jesus says, I, I know. I see that. And I respect that. And I'm really pleased with you. That's the first part of the letter. Jesus praises this church for their faithfulness. You think, wow, what a great church. But it's, it's not all going really well. Uh, um, looking at one of my reports, and I, I found out that um, in English and physics, things are going very well. But in geography, apparently, not so well. And there were lapses in concentration, according to Mr. Millard. And I was even putting others off their work. I must say, I, I don't remember that. But... Um, it's the same in Ephesus. Things going well, other things going not so well. And if we look, uh, look at verse 4, we can see that there's a problem. But I have this against you, says Jesus. All these things that are going well, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's the second half of this. He praises this church for their faithfulness, but Jesus also warns them about abandoning the love they had at first. They had hard work. They had patient endurance. They had a keen sense of spiritual smell. They had a concern for truth, but they didn't have so much love. And Jesus says that that's really serious. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean to abandon the love they had at first? Well, a lot of people looking at this passage have said that it's, um, he's calling them back to the love they had when they first became Christians. Maybe some of, um, some of us might feel like that. When I first became a Christian, I, I was so thrilled. I had such a clear sense of what Jesus had done for me, laying down his life on the cross to forgive my sins. And I loved him, and I would have done anything for him. But over the years, I guess, you know, things have slipped a bit. Some of us may feel like that. 
But I, I don't think that that's what Jesus can be meaning here. For a start, lots of Christians don't share that pattern of experience because they were either very young when they became Christians or at the time when they put their trust in Jesus, life was a real struggle. And so they don't share that pattern of experience. And it wouldn't make sense to say, therefore, that um, to all Christians. But the other thing here, I think, means that can't be right, is that he's speaking not to individuals, but to a whole church altogether. And there would have been young Christians there, and also the veteran Christians, a whole range of them. And he says to all of them about their church life altogether, that they're in danger of moving away from the love they used to have. So what does it mean then? What does it mean for a church to abandon the love they had at first? So I would explain it like this. There's lots of good stuff in Ephesus, as we've seen, but they had lost their focus on Jesus. They were sticking up for his truth, but they'd rather lost touch with him. They were working hard, but not for him. Many of us, I'm sure, will be able to identify with that issue as we think about what we do here. We come to church because it's what we do, or because we want to see our friends, and not so much because we want to meet with Jesus and hear from him. We serve in church because the jobs need doing. We want to keep the show on the road. We don't want to let people down, and not really because we love Jesus and we're grateful to him. And we want to serve him. We can so quickly, can't we, end up doing the right things, but not from the right motivation, not driven by a mindset of personal love for Jesus. Have a look down at verse 1, please. At the beginning of all these letters, there's an introduction. Jesus introduces himself. And every time he, he does that by picking one aspect of the vision from chapter 1. And it's not an accident. He, he picks an aspect of the vision to introduce himself that fits with what the rest of the letter says. And we'll see that each time as we go through it week by week. So let's look at verse 1 and think this through for Ephesus. Jesus says, um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you look up at uh, chapter 1, verse 20, you can see what that symbolism means. The stars are the angels, that is, the messengers, either the human leaders or some sort of heavenly overseers of the, of the particular churches. And then the lampstands themselves, those are the churches. Lampstand, like a light shining in the darkness, as Andy was praying. That's what a church is, a lampstand. And so if we look again at chapter 2, verse 1, the image that that puts into our minds as we, as we begin to read this letter in Ephesus is Jesus himself walking among his churches. He is present. He is there. They are his churches. But it is possible for us to forget that. Uh, sometimes when um, we're talking about our church, or we're asking about somebody else's church. We say, oh, I love our church. The, the music's really great. Or, you know, the, we have real coffee. It's wonderful. And they've got new chairs and they're very nice to sit on. And, and that's fine, those things. But it's 
it's Jesus is right at the heart of a church. He, he's the one that we need to see everything in terms of. Or maybe you've been on holiday uh, and you say, oh, I went to visit Robin Sidsus Church in Edinburgh. Or I was in London and we went to see John Stott's old church. Well, that's not quite right, is it? Because the churches belong to Jesus. I think that's the sense of verse 1. A local church is a group of people who know Jesus and trust Jesus and love Jesus. And everything in the life of a local church has to come back to him. If you're not yet a Christian, thinking things through, I really hope this passage will help you to see what Christianity really is and to see what being involved in a church really is. Because we, we, we managed to make the institution of the church or the social idea of Christianity into all sorts of things that it's not. This is what it is. It's about knowing a real person. It's about knowing Jesus yourself and loving him. And Christianity will only start to make sense when you understand that, that it's about knowing Jesus, loving him, and also when you understand why he's worth loving because of his great love towards us laying down his life so that we could be forgiven. Also, though, for those of us who would say that we're already Christians, this passage really is asking us, do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus? Because it must be true for us, as well as it was true for those older Christians in Ephesus, that habit or duty can very quickly replace affection in the Christian life. It wouldn't necessarily be easy to spot in a church because a lot of the same things would keep on being done, but the motivation would be different, driven by duty, habit, and not by a personal warm love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this passage is asking us to have an honest think. How, How is our love for Jesus. It isn't easy, is it, among all the, the hurly-burly of, of life? I remember a few years ago helping on a kids' camp, and um, if you've ever been on one of those, you know it's frantic for the leaders, you, wall-to-wall activity all day, trying to help the young people and ha- make the meals run and ha- having fun, playing all sorts of silly games and, and learning from the Bible, and the leaders have to work really hard. And I remember one morning trying to read my Bible before it all got going, and I read Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And I remember that hit me, that amid all the busyness, that's what it all came back to, that all the things we were doing, we were doing it for him. That's a very powerful and refreshing thought. And I think we can apply that in our church life, can't we? I love you, O Lord, my strength as you seek to serve him, as we seek to serve him, that is what it all comes back to. So we need to ask ourselves as a church, do we love the Lord Jesus? If we did, I think that'll that'll show through in the conversations that we have, that we speak often and warmly of him. It'll come through in our, our prayer meetings on a Tuesday or on Sundays before the services, that yes, we're, we're there to ask for God to help us, but we're also there to draw near, drawing near 
um, to the one that we love. There's a corporate application here, but also individually. We need to think about, I guess, very basically, our own quiet times. Each day, we're trying to read the Bible and pray a little bit as we draw near to Jesus in that way. Many of us find it really hard to, to have that time regularly, but we need to. We do need to. It's really what Christian living all comes back to, a personal love for Jesus. Maybe the slightly quieter rhythm of the summer or perhaps some holiday time away, if you have that, would be a good chance to address that if that's something that has slipped in your life or that you've never tried. Or if you do have a habit, though, of those quiet times, meeting with Jesus every day, we do need to work hard as well, though, that it's more than just a habit. And it, it takes work to maintain that real sense, morning by morning, of drawing near to him personally in love. This is really important. Love for the Lord Jesus. We need to learn from the mistakes of the Ephesians as well as from their strengths. And if we do sense a lack of love for Christ, then we need to act. We need to do something about that. Often in our, um, our society, people talk about love as though it were a feeling that is either there or it's not there. And there isn't really very much you can do about it. So you, people say, oh, I, I fell in love and there was nothing I could, couldn't help it. I, I fell out of love and it just happened. I, I couldn't do anything about it. But Jesus says that's not really how love works. Look at verse 5, please. Read that again with me. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. <laughs> repent and do the works you did at first. In order to address their waning love, these Christians need to repent. That is, they need to make a choice. They need to do something engaging their wills. It's not just a matter of waiting, hoping that somehow the feelings will rekindle. The Ephesians need to act. Well, act how? What should they do? Well, I would suggest if... If you do feel like that, that perhaps your, your love, our love, is waning for Christ, then try to focus on the love that he has shown to you. In the Bible, in Christianity, that, that's really how love works. We love because he loved us first. And it is as we see so clearly, how clearly at the cross, Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us, that our hearts will be changed and rekindled with love for him. So perhaps this week, find 15 minutes and a cup of tea and read through one of the passages that really speaks very clearly of the love of God at the cross. 15 minutes in Isaiah 53, or in Mark 15, or 1 Peter 2, and think of the love that Jesus had for you, for us, as he laid down his life. And we'll find that our hearts are warmed again to love him back. That's the second half of the letter, the things that are going not so well. Jesus warns this church about abandoning the love they had at first. It's very serious. <clears throat> if you look at verse 5, you see what will happen if they don't respond. He says, if not, 
I will remove your lampstand. Remember that, that means the church. I will remove the lampstand. It's, um, think of it like dry rot in a church. You can't necessarily see a lack of love immediately, but it, it will bring the place down. It will bring the place down. And we mustn't presume that that would never happen here. Because if we lose our love for Jesus, then really we've lost everything. Now, as I said at the beginning, this letter wasn't written addressing us directly, but it was written for us. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as individuals and as a church, we need to think through what Jesus has said. We need to learn from the Ephesians' faithfulness. We need to learn from their lack of love. And as we close, uh, please just have a look at verse 7 at the end there. A bit like at the beginning of each of these letters, at the end, there's a promise made for those who, who will respond and who will overcome and repent and stick with Jesus in the way that he wants right until the end. There's a promise there. And again, like with the introductions, these are not random. These are very specifically chosen for each of the churches, and it fits with the content of the letter. And we can see that here, as Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. An unflagging love for Jesus will be rewarded. How? By a return to Eden, where we will live forever in the very presence of God. An unflagging love for Jesus is rewarded by an eternity of intimate relationship with him. Let's pray. Here who ha- he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we ask that you would grant us ears to hear this morning, that you would help us to think honestly about our own lives and our own church life. We pray, Lord, that we would be marked by faithfulness and also by this love, that we would see everything in life and in church life in terms of you, that we would be warmed and driven by a great affection for Jesus and a gratitude for what he has done for us. And Lord, we pray that that love would mark us all the way through our lives until we reach its reward when we are with you face to face and the relationship that we have with you now that in many ways is so imperfect will be swapped for the full reality of your presence. Lord, please rekindle our love for your name's sake. Amen.